0: Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hey, uh, I'm Jeff, one of the pastors of Salt Church. Welcome. If you don't normally find yourself here, it's great to have you here with us. Let me ask you this. What do you do when you're wronged? When someone hurts you or sins against you, what do you do when you're treated unfairly and justice isn't done? What do you do with those words that someone said, the years later still make your blood boil? What do you do when you confront someone with their sin and they just brush it off? Or everyone around you forgives that person, but you just can't move past it. What do you do when you're falsely accused? And people misjudge your motives and view your words and actions in the worst possible light and won't forgive you. What do you do with that workmate or that boss that just seems to have it in for you, persistently undermines you? What do you do with your family member or that friend or that housemate or that spouse that doesn't respect you and just rolls their eyes every time you tell them how much you've been hurt? And most painful of all, What do you do when the people who hurt you most claim to be Christians? That's what we're exploring today, how to handle hurts. We're all hurt by others at times, and we all hurt others at times. And there's many different ways to handle those hurts. I think some of the most common, uh, one of them is all about confrontation, kind of aggressively charging in like a bull for a fight because you've been hurt, And they need to know how much they've been hurt. And it's not fair and it's not right. And you need justice. Then there's the passive aggressive version of the same thing, where someone treats you badly. You're treated badly. Someone does X to you. And so you write a social media post about how you've noticed some people have a real problem with X and they really need to learn to deal with it. Uh, Then there's the gossip approach, where you get revenge by telling everybody what that person did. Then there's the sneaky gossip approach, where you share about the problem with a friend and ask for prayer, because if it's a prayer point, then it can't be gossip, right? Uh, Then I think there's avoiding. You hope that if you just somehow ignore it, it'll resolve itself. Or you can avoid the person, and you can do that classic Christian move. If you've got an issue with someone in your church, you change church. And then there's a response that's become more popular in the last 10 years, cancelling. I'm sure most of us know about cancelling, but if you don't know about cancelling, it's about publicly shaming someone who doesn't follow social rules. So if someone does something that you believe is irredeemably bad, you call them out, you cancel them. You destroy their reputation, you get them banned, you boycott their products and their brand, you unfriend them online, you don't have anything more to do with them because of how wrong what they said or did is. And there can be an element of good in this. Uh, Part of the Me Too movement was about publicly calling out sexual abusers. But a lot of the time, cancel culture looks a fair bit like mob vigilante justice where instead of trying to understand why someone did or said what they did, you just attack and shun them. And you see, there's no shortage of ways to handle hurts. And we often pick and choose those different alternatives. I I think I've tried all of those things, I say to my shame. But Jesus has a solution too. Jesus has a way that he wants us to face this. How does Jesus want us to handle hurts? That's what we're going to see today. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're here kind of exploring Jesus and what he says about life, I think you're going to encounter a radically different way to live. And if you're here and you are a Christian, we already know that Jesus' answer is going to be the right way to live. We follow Jesus, so his way is our way. But to be honest, Jesus' way feels drastic and excessive and extremely hard to do. And so it's no surprise that we go with the alternatives. It's going to take some serious heart surgery for us, not just to do what Jesus asks, but to maybe even love what Jesus asks. So I'm going to ask for God's help as we dive into this. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, this is really hard, what you're telling us to do here. Please would you do this heart surgery in us, Help us to do what you ask. Help us to love what you ask. Help us to see why you ask it of us. Amen. Have a look with me. Matthew 18, verse 15. We're going to trace our way through. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So Jesus' way to handle hurt is this three-step process to follow. But before we track through it, notice a couple of things. It says, if your brother or sister... This is the way that the Bible talks about Christians. Each Christian is a child of God, and so Christians are family. We're brothers and sisters together. This passage is about sins in the church by Christians. And notice sins, if your brother or sister sins. It could be any type of sin, or you've got a footnote there probably that says it could be sins against you. This is for when a fellow Christian sins or sins against you. And what do you do? You point out their fault just between the two of you. The the way that they've wronged you, the way that they've wronged others, the way that they've wronged God. You go and correct them and convince them of the problem. And the goal, the aim, is the end of verse 15. If they listen to you, you have won them over. There's actually a little bit of an unhelpful translation in the NIV. Uh, The New Testament is originally written in Greek, ancient Greek. Here's what verse 15 says in Greek. If they listen to you, you have won them. Full stop. The ESV gets this a bit better. It says, you've gained your brother. The goal is not to win an argument. It's to win them, which is the opposite of all those other approaches. Rather than aggression or passive aggression where you confront so you can get justice... You correct them to win them back from sin. Rather than avoiding them because it just hurts so much, you correct them to win them back from sin. Rather than cancelling and shaming someone, you correct them to win them back from sin. It's all about them. It's caring about them enough to tell them. And then Jesus gives us a three-step process of what to do. And this is often seen as a manual for church discipline. But I think it's more helpful to see principles here, principles that we're meant to apply. Because you could follow these principles, you could follow this process exactly and just end up with a big hot mess because you didn't see the principles. So what are they? Let's have a look. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Here's the three steps. But isn't the classic way to reverse this? To talk to one or two people about the person, tell a bunch of people, and then go and talk to the person? Don't we spend... Way more time talking about the person before we ever talk to the person. But Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. Jesus says, go and talk to them in private. How many problems would we fix if we just did that? And I've realized as I was reflecting on this, I'm not that great at this. Uh, growing up, I was like the peacemaker in my family. Even now, I want to help people fix their problems. I want to get rid of the tensions. I often end up in a bit of a triangle. Uh, I made this. I think it's pretty impressive. It took me far longer than it should have, (laughs) far longer than the five minutes it deserves. But this is what often happens to me. Person A comes to me with a problem about person B. They've got a problem, person A, person B, and person A comes to me to tell me about it. And instead of telling person A to go and talk to person B, I go and talk to person B. What am I doing? I've created a triangle when there should be a line. And it's even worse if person A and person B both come to me and then here I'm juggling it all. What am I doing? I, don't, I shouldn't be in this. So I've started trying to work on my default reaction. I've realized that I do this. My default reaction now that I'm trying to work on is when person A comes to me with a problem, I'll say to them, that's really sad. I'm really sad to hear that. I'll pray for you. But have you spoken with them about that? And when did you try and speak with them about that? And how many times have you tried to speak with them about that? And when was the last time you tried to speak with them about that? Because Jesus is very clear here. What does he want us to do? He wants us to win our brother or sister back by correcting their sins. The first step to take if a Christian sins or if a Christian sins against you is to talk to them. So why don't we do that? It's because it's really hard to do. We feel like hypocrites when we do this. Like, who am I to point out your sin when I am just as much a sinner as you are? And doesn't Jesus even tell us not to do this? You know, the the story, the plank, the speck? Doesn't Jesus tell us not to do this? Let me show you. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you're done. No, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus doesn't say, don't raise this at all, because you'd be a hypocrite. He says, deal with yourself first. Examine your own faults, your own motives. Do you want to win this person back or do you just want revenge? And then once you've dealt with you, remove the speck from their eye because it's painful and it's dangerous to have sawdust in your eye. This is one of the things that stops us. I think another thing that stops us is we feel like we really need to know the person. We need to know the person better. Because if we were friends and if we were close, then it would be right for me to get involved. But I barely know them. And I think there is something to this. I think there is something. Because when you have to confront and correct your closest friend, it's super easy. It's barely an inconvenience. There's no anxiety. There's no angst. There's no relationship tension. I hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. This is never easy to do. When was this ever easy to do? It's not easy, no matter how well you know someone. So why would we ever do it? Why would we ever win our brother or sister by correcting their sin? It's because sin is serious. We saw this last week. Come back to verse 9. Have a look. Verse 9. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Sin wrecks us. Sin destroys us. Sin is deadly serious for us. And the one who is sinning is your brother or sister. Not someone that you barely know, someone that you'll spend eternity with. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you are closer to the Christians in this room than you are to your family or your friends who aren't Christians? Our earthly families are temporary. Our spiritual family lasts for eternity. It lasts long after our earthly families are gone. Correct your brother or sister. Correct their sin because sin is serious and because our brothers and sisters are precious to God. I mean, look at the lengths that God goes to save and protect his children. We need to see our fellow Christians the way that God does. And I think we also need to realize that there, are no, there is no such thing As private sins there is no such thing as a private sin all the sins we all did this week we have brought with us to church all the sins that i've done my sin affects you and your sin affects me and we are responsible for each other we're responsible to help each other so let me ask who do you need to speak to Who do you need to speak to this week? Do you have a name? Do you have a face? Not to win an argument, not to get justice, not to get relief from your hurt, but to win them. Who do you need to speak to this week? Quick tip, how do you raise this? This is awkward. How do you raise this with people? Here's what I do. Works for me. Uh, I'll say to people, hey, look, I've just noticed this about you. And I'm really worried for you. And uh, am I right? Is that a problem for you? And, and I'm not trying to judge you. I've got my own issues. I'm just thinking, the two of us together, how can we become more like Jesus? Let's help each other. That's what I say to people. And I've got to say, every time that I'm rebuked, I feel judged, I feel ashamed. And I feel deeply loved that someone cared enough about me to want to win me back from sin. Let's be a church like that. Let's care enough about each other and enough about sin to want to win each other back. To raise it in spite of how hard it is to do that well. What happens though if you do raise it and the person doesn't listen? Verse 16. Have a look. Verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that you can gang up on them. No, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What's the point here? The point is to take others also so that they can convict them of the seriousness of this sin. To take others who can also witness them refuse to apologize and repent and change. And then verse 17, If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which I think feels very harsh. Is this one of those moments where a church leader fails in such a serious way that they're publicly rebuked and removed from their position? Is this excommunication? Uh, just telling the churchmen, you, you get them up front, you share about all their sins. Is that what we're going to do next week? Come back, we're going to share about all your sins and wait until you hear about the sins at 10 a.m. church. They're mental. Is that what he's talking about? No, I don't think that's what he's talking about because we've got to see the situation that Jesus is describing here. What's the principle here? What's the situation here? A Christian sins. And when one Christian brother or sister points that out, and when um, several Christian brothers and sisters point that out. And then a whole church of brothers and sisters point that out who want to win them back from sin and they don't care. They refuse to apologize and repent and follow Jesus and change. What would you call such a person? I would call them not a Christian. All the evidence points to them not being a Christian. They're not following Jesus. And so treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, which means treat them like someone who is outside the church, which feels really harsh until you remember how Jesus treats the pagans and the tax collectors. This comes from earlier in Matthew's gospel. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, the same man who writes the book that we're reading, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew, of all people, knows that Jesus came for the outsiders. That's why he came. Now, what would this look like at Soul Church? I think this would look like us as a church, as pastors going, look, I don't think this person's a Christian based on how they're living. And you saying to the person, hey, I'm not sure that you're a Christian because of how you're living. But I'd love you to know Jesus. So come and sit with me. Come to church with me on a Sunday. You can sit with me. And how about we go to the Life Series during the week? And hey, do you want to catch up and read the Bible during the week? Because it seems like you don't understand Jesus. But I'd love you to understand Jesus because he's so good. I mean, that's what it looks like. You see, it's nowhere near as harsh as it felt at first. It is still really hard to do, though. So why would we ever do it? Because sin is serious, because Christians are family, and because Jesus came for the outsider and the sinner. Do you know, actually, this is most true of us. Look at verse 15 again and put yourself in there. When we sinned, Jesus came, God came in the person of his son to point out our fault just between the two of us, and God caused us to listen to win us over. This is true of us. There's always hope of repentance and change in discovering Jesus when God is involved. And like he is in the promises that come next. Have a look at the promises, verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two of three gather in my name, there am I with them. These verses are awesome. Uh, These verses have kind of become a, a bit of a great fridge magnet or Christian inspirational poster. You can find many of these posters that just have these verses on there. Maybe not verse 18, whatever that means. That's a bit weird. But the rest of it is so good, isn't it? That's often how these verses get treated. They're a great promise that we just pluck out of context. But why does Jesus say this next? I think it's because there's a huge spanner in this whole process so that Christians disagree about sin and the Bible. So what do you do if you go to correct your brother or sister and you can't agree if it even is sin? You've got your Bibles open, but you can't work it out. Well, that is what these promises are about. That's what the binding and the loosing thing is about. Look in verse 18 again. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, or better, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. What the heck is this talking about? Uh, It's a practice from the Jewish rabbis at the time. So if they bound something, Jewish people were not allowed to do it. If they loosed something, Jewish people were allowed to do it. So for example, the rabbis took God's Old Testament law about not working on the Sabbath, having one day a week where you didn't work, you just praise God, not working on the Sabbath. And they came up with the 39 melechah, I had to Google how to say melechol. That's how you say it. You can Don't remember that. That's not the most important thing tonight. But they came up with 39 things that were bound. These are 39 things you can't do on the Sabbath if you're an ancient Israelite because that would be work. Everything else, though, was loose. Everything else was allowed. And Jesus condemns the teachers of the law not because they bind and loose things, He condemns them because they treat their binding and loosing laws as equal with God's law, or a lot of the time more important than God's law. But that's the idea. How should God's people live? What's allowed, what's not allowed? What's bound and what's loosed? I have a friend named Greg. Uh, He did his PhD studying the music of a First Nations community in the Northern Territory. And while he was there, he was there for three and a half years, while he was there living in this community, he had had lots of opportunities to pastor the Aboriginal Christians who were there. And one time a group of these Christians came to him to ask for help in their binding and loosing. They said to him, we've, we've looked at the Bible and we can't find anywhere that says Christians can't drink alcohol and play cards. But those two things are really big issues in our community they cause a lot of damage and they're part of the traditional spiritual beliefs that we, had, that we left behind when we turned to follow Jesus. So can you help us out? Is it okay for us to do these things? And Greg said, I, I don't understand the intricacies of your culture. I don't want to be another white man who comes in, and imposes white man law. Would you do it if Jesus was here? And they said, no way. He said, well, there's your answer. And from that point onwards, these Christians didn't do it. Christians in this First Nations tribe stopped joining in with those things. And it became a bit of a sign in this particular tribe. If someone stopped drinking and stopped playing cards, their family would go, oh, they must have become a Christian. That's what this means. That's what this looks like. As we work out how God wants us to live, is this sin or not? God helps us arrive at the truth. As we work out from the Bible, what has God bound in heaven so that we can also bind it on earth? And what has God loosed in heaven so we can loose it on earth? God helps us arrive at the truth. The same thing in verse 19. Have a look at verse 19. As Christians understand how God wants us to live as we agree on that, God listens and God acts. And verse 20, Jesus hasn't left us to sort this out on our own. He's with us. As we sort this out, even if there's just two or three of us, he's with us. See, how do we handle hurt? Win your brother or sister by correcting their sin. So let me ask again, who do you need to speak to this week? When are you going to do that? Don't we want to be a church that cares enough about each other to raise this, in spite of how hard it is to do this well? And we'll do it because God is with us to help us arrive at the truth. But there is a whole other side to handling hurts. One side is pointing out the problem, calling someone to apologize and repent and change. But the other side is much harder. The other side is forgiving them. Have a look at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I think Peter, he gets a bit of a bad rap. Sometimes he deserves it because he puts his foot in it all the time. But he gets a bit of a bad rap because he's actually being changed by Jesus in the Gospels. A common belief from the Jewish rabbis at the time is that you should forgive three times. Like in baseball, three strikes and you're out. Sometimes we're even less generous than that. I'm sure you know the saying, "For me once.'" Shame on you, for me twice, shame on me, twice, that's it. But Peter says seven times, which is outrageously generous. Uh, Would you lend your friend your car seven times if each time you lent it to them, they wrote it off? You would never do that. If you need to forgive someone seven times, aren't you being taken advantage of? What does Jesus say? Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. His point is, stop counting. And then he gives us a story to show us what this looks like. A story basically to tell us, to teach us that we need to forgive our brothers and sisters as we've been forgiven. Forgive our brothers and sisters as we've been forgiven. Let me just pull a few things out of this story. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Uh, I did the math this week to work out how much this is worth in today's money. Here's what it works out to He owes 10,000 talents, 10,000 talents of money. One talent is 6,000 denarii. One denarii is the average day pay for an unskilled laborer. The minimum wage in Australia at the moment is about $21 an hour. So a a day's work, eight hours a day, a minimum wage is about $170 a day. So this man owes $170 by $6,000 by $10,000. He owes $10.2 billion. 60 million days of work, 165,000 years of work. I mean, seriously, what was this guy doing? Like, you can't even lose that much money on the crypto market. What is he doing? And this money that he's lost, this $10 billion that he's lost, and it's not even his money to lose in the first place. This is the king's money. This is monumental mismanagement. And so verse 25, Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. They liquidate everything he owns to recover really just a minuscule amount of the actual debt. And bear in mind, this guy, this is not Elon Musk. This is not Jeff Bezos. This is just a servant, a slave. There's no way he can raise this. So they liquidate something to recover a minuscule amount of the actual debt. They even sell him as a slave and sell his family into slavery. That's the what... He's going to do. And I think we struggle with that idea. We struggle with the idea of slavery for good reasons. But I think it's a fair response when you've lost $10 billion of somebody else's money. Verse 26: At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Do you notice what he begs for? More time. Not for the debt to be cancelled, not to be forgiven. Just give me more time and I will pay back everything. Even his request is insultingly untrue, which makes the king's response even more stunning. Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. Simply because the master chose to have pity and show compassion, his debt is wiped He's forgiven. And the next thing Jesus should say should have been the report about how this person went out and found his fellow servants and told them about the extreme compassion and mercy of the king. Or it should have been the report of how he went to the temple and just broke into song, praising God. Instead, verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found, or better, he sought out one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a hundred denarii, a hundred days' work, about $17,000. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This is actually doable to pay back this amount. But he has no mercy on him because his focus is on what he's owed, not what he's received. And so he starts to choke him. And, and the he's fell, verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt, which really he can never repay because he's in prison. He can never work it off because he's in prison. Even in judgment, he shows less mercy than the king was going to show to him. So verse 31, And then here's the kicker. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The point is very clear. Christians have been forgiven an infinite amount by God. Our unpayable debt is cancelled simply because the king of heaven decided to have pity and show compassion. We can't receive that astronomical forgiveness and at the same time focus on what we're owed. We can't be forgiven for so much and yet refuse to forgive other people. We need to forgive our brothers and sisters as we've been forgiven. And this is the polar opposite of all the alternatives. If you confront someone to get revenge how can you also have forgiven them? If you avoid them and give them the cold shoulder, how can you also have forgiven them? And is there any forgiveness in council culture? The whole point of it is to shame someone into changing, not for me to forgive them. Uh, Speaking of fridge magnets and posters, Christians also have bumper stickers. We love our bumper stickers. You might have seen this bumper sticker before. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I think this is a profoundly helpful bumper sticker. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're exploring Christianity, you need to know this about Jesus. Jesus came for bad people. Jesus came for sinners and for tax collectors and pagans and outsiders and me and you and all of us. Jesus saves us by cancelling our infinite unpayable debt and forgiving us. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about being perfect and good enough for God, but realizing you're not perfect and you'll never be good enough for God. Not in 60 million days or 165,000 years of work will you ever be good enough for God. But God canceled our debt and he forgives anyone who trusts in Jesus. This bumper sticker is great. It says so much, but I actually think it says too little. Because Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven and forgivers. God's grace changes us so we become like our Master and our King. And if we're not like our Master and our King, you have to wonder do we even know Him? So let me ask who do you need to forgive? Do you have a name? Do you have a face? Who do you need to forgive this week? A couple of tips as you try and do this. Forgiveness is a journey. Uh, Sometimes we want to forgive someone, but every time we try and do that, we remember what it is we'd be forgiving them for, that I'd be forgiving them for this and for this and for this, and I don't want to forgive them for that because it just hurts so much. Sometimes we want to forgive or we want to want to forgive, but it feels so hard. It may seem impossible for you to get to the end of that road, but just take the next step on that journey. I think another thing that that can be really helpful is to think of it this way, that we choose to forgive once and then we keep choosing to let it go. We don't decide multiple times if this person deserves forgiveness, am I going to forgive them for today or not, We forgive them once and then look back to the moment where we did forgive them and try again to pass the pain over to God. Choose now to live in response to that. I think another thing that can be really helpful is a realistic picture of what this looks like. A realistic picture of what this might look like, what relationships might look like this side of the new creation. Let me show you another triangle that also took me too long to make. Uh, The goal in any of these conflicts, the goal is reconciliation, restoration, being friends again, being united again. That's the goal. How do you get there? You get there by repentance and forgiveness. And this, I think, is really helpful because it shows us what we're responsible for. So if if you're the person who's done the wrong thing, You need to repent. You need to apologize to the person and change with God's help. And the other person needs to accept your apology and forgive you. What happens, though, if you only get one of those things? What if you repent, you apologize, you try and change, but the other person refuses to forgive you? Well, you won't get reconciliation. they're refusing to forgive you or vice versa what if you forgive them and you tell them look i've forgiven you for here's what you did here's how much you hurt me i've forgiven you but they say no i didn't do anything wrong there's nothing wrong i'm not being forgiven i've got nothing to be forgiven for you can't really have reconciliation there but you've done what you're responsible for i think this is really helpful to see this kind of pattern how this all hangs together because it helps us see the goal. It helps us to see you can't have one without the other. I think it helps us see that sin affects relationships. Trust needs to be rebuilt. Sometimes we can't have it, this side of the new creation. And this is really helpful for that situation for an abuser. What do you do when you're interacting with an abuser? Well, you forgive them. Jesus calls us to forgive them. But if the person's not repenting, if they're not changing, if they're not admitting what's wrong, you can't have the same reconciliation. You won't have the same relationship. You guard yourself, but you still choose to keep on forgiving them. I think this is really helpful to see how this hangs together. What are we seeing? Let me wrap up. What have we seen? I think Jesus has done some heart surgery on us. How does Jesus want us to handle our hurts? To win our brother and sister by correcting their sin. To forgive our brother and sister as we've been forgiven. And if you're here, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Isn't this a radically different way to live? This is so different to what our culture does. And if you're here and you're a Christian, I'm going to finish by leading us in prayer. If you're a Christian, as I pray, I want you to name in your mind one person that you want to forgive or to remember the moment where you did forgive them and choose here and now to let it go again and pass it over to God. And I want you to to name in your mind one person that you want to correct and win back to God. I'm going to pray. Join me in praying. Father God, I pray for my Christian brother or sister who is caught in sins or who has sinned against me. Their name is please give me this courage to speak to them. Please help them to listen. Please help me to give me an opportunity to talk to them even this week. I also pray for the person who has hurt me. Their name is Here and now, I forgive them. Help me to remember that I've forgiven them. Help me to choose to let it go once again. And thank you that when I sinned, when we sinned, you came to me and your son to point out my sin so I might listen and turn to Jesus and be saved. And thank you that you saw my infinite debt and took pity on me and cancelled my debt and made me your child. Amen.